Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And True Crime TV Club is back. We have <laughs> returned <laughs> to True Crime TV Club. We've been doing a week on, a week off. We've been doing deep, deep dives on and topics other weeks. And let us know how you weeks. like that. I mean, yes. we love doing the True Crime TV Club, but we didn't just want it to just be True Crime TV Club Unless that's what you guys want. I don't know. Like, I don't know. We're all about what you guys want. The Dinner Party Show's Facebook page is where we invite you to communicate with us and to tell us what's working for you and what isn't. And when you talk about what isn't working with you, just please use diplomatic language because we're very, very sensitive oh, artists. Very, very sensitive. fragile. Thin-skinned. Really touchy. Easily provoked. And, yeah. yeah. And cry a lot. Absolutely. Cry we cry a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, okay. No, that isn't true. But do, but do keep us posted because it was a thing that we do, we we consciously did because we we heard that you guys liked the True Crime TV Club. But we thought, well, but there was the other thing they liked that too. So we don't want to forget so we're our doing both. Origins, our roots. Usual disclaimers that we always attach to True Crime TV Club. If you would like to pause now and watch the episode we're going to discuss, we will be discussing a show called The 1980s, The Deadliest Decade. Uh, there are two seasons of this, which are streamable on Amazon and I believe other web platforms as well. We will be in season two, episode eight, and the topic is The Cotton Club Murder. All of that said... Our job with True Crime TV Club is to present the full picture and tell the full story as it is delivered to us by this right. episode of television. So you are not, yeah, you do not need to see the episode. This to is the audiobooks of True Crime absolutely. TV. Absolutely. And so with all of that said, let us dive into the Cotton Club murder. Mm. Oh my God, I love this one. Oh, I love oh this God. one. I love this one. And I'll say it up front just to get it out of the way. Part of the reason I loved it expressionistic reenactments. No dialogue, no terrible wigs, out of focus, smoky. She had a terrible wig. She had a terrible wig. There were a yeah. lot of terrible wigs. There were a lot of terrible wigs, but they were deliberately terrible wigs. There were, there were wigs makeup, that people probably wore in really real life. Bad makeup. But it was all out of focus. The eyebrows on that guy were not out of focus. They oh were... my God. <laughs> what was going on with those eyebrows? But they leaned heavily on archival photographs, which if you're doing anything that's period, you should. And you want Christopher to be happy. Yeah. Yeah, and you want me to be happy with your Burns. 80s pastiche. It wasn't Ken Burns. It was a little more energetic than that. I meant Ken Burns to be happy. Oh, yes. Ken Burns to be happy. Christopher and, Chris and Ken will Ken be happy. Ken and I are, with are, 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 are like this. We're wrapped around each other's period fingers. They oh. want archival photographs. We love archival photographs. Okay. All of that said, 
I feel like this story had everything that you and I love in a true crime story. Oh, my God. This was so, it was, oh, yeah, it was all there. It was just scandalous and delicious and salacious and lurid and Mm -hmm. Hollywood and New York and Mm -hmm. big money and vaudeville terrible criminals movies oh my god oh my god everything and i will say that this is ultimately a story well i'm not going to say that because it's not true this is you could say this is the story of a movie called the cotton club but it really isn't the movie is like an incidental footnote i will just say and the movie is no incidental footnote on its own when the cotton club came out i believe it was vanity fair it may have been premiere magazine but i think it was vanity fair devoted an entire issue to telling the story of the making of the cotton club it is unbelievable did it involve this crime this was an incidental yeah. element to the right. overall story it was this epic catastrophe from beginning to end. Everything about the making of the movie was a catastrophe. And this, the murder that happened in the course of it was really only a blip mm-hmm. on a continuum of catastrophe. That's how bad the, the, the making of the movie is. I keep waiting for the movie about the making of the Cotton Or Club. the 10-part series, right? That yeah. would be that would be a really good film. I think we should say this before we dive in, because we as Hollywood types, we need to set up who Robert Evans was. I think for people, particularly who aren't familiar with the film industry, to have an appreciation. Yeah, he passed away recently. No, that was really, that's a shame. Robert Evans was arguably one of the most famous film producers in the history of Hollywood. I think he started as a child actor and worked his way up the business. He was responsible for... um, a lot of the iconic movies that defined Hollywood in the 60s and 70s, particularly Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby. There's another one that I'm leaving out. Love the, Story. The Godfather, I think, was the also Godfather. Robert. Godfather. Love Story. Big movies. Um, he, big was name. he was the head of Paramount Studios. the head of Paramount Studios. he was like... I, I can't remember. I, I can't remember his actual history. It seems like mm, he was... Wasn't he the one who... Um, got discovered by the pool somewhere. I will say this, and I can't, I don't remember it, it all of it. He was a pant salesman. It was something like there is a documentary about his life that is essentially his memoir, narrated in first person with archival footage, called "The Kid Stays in the Picture." Which, if you are interested by what you hear about Robert Evans in this, I highly recommend it. He's a fascinating. He's a character. fascinating character. and a real uh, a, a big name in in old. Oldish Hollywood, like yeah. 70s Hollywood, 70s, 80s Hollywood. He was a, a big deal. So, But he had his star had kind of begun to fade into mm-hmm. the 80s, and he was no longer at Paramount, and he'd had some flops, and he was on tougher times at the time that we join him mm-hmm. in this story. But but this story is really the story of Roy Radin. Roy Radin, absolutely. Roy Radin is a six foot four, 300-pound... Live and hat wearing, silver tipped cane holding New York theater producer, Bon Vivant, who really wants to break into Hollywood. That is his dream, and it's been his dream since he was a young man. We get some backstory on Roy at the beginning of the show. Uh, His father walked out on his mother when he was very young, and it became Roy's responsibility to care for the family, including his younger sisters. And so, as a teenager, he put 
together a vaudeville review starring has-been television talent and people he could cobble together and became a multimillionaire by the time he was 20 years old. He makes kind his of remarkable. first million by the time he's 20 years old, and this is several decades ago, so a million went a lot further yeah, back then. A million yeah. dollars was a lot of money in 19, whenever it was, 68, 70, whenever he, made, whenever he was 20. He buys a 70-room mansion in the Hamptons, which becomes See? the center of drug and <laughs> sex parties galore. Yeah, million dollars went a long way. He's doing about fifteen hundred to three thousand five hundred dollars worth of cocaine a week during this Which time is, as well. I I was be like a wheelbarrow full. That's a lot of cocaine. God, particularly in seventies dollars. Yeah, Jesus, a lot of cocaine. I imagine he was sharing. I hope he was sharing because otherwise he would have died before I the story could have happened. Party. Well, he certainly wouldn't have weighed three hundred pounds. Yeah, no, that's very true. <laughs> Unless he was carrying it in his pocket, because he would have been up all night moving the furniture. Yeah. So, um. Roy Raiden, the thing that I was most taken with, and I, they didn't really do a deep dive on this because it wasn't a wonky entertainment industry show. It was a true crime show. The reason it seemed like he was able to make so much money off this vaudeville show is because he could schedule so many shows in a row, which I guess was a thing with vaudeville because you had so many different performers just doing single acts. It wouldn't exhaust them to do four shows a day. Right. They say this now about DJs. That part of the reasons DJs like Tiesto are making so much money is because they don't have to dance for four hours, literally. They're using premixed tracks and operating machinery in a way that's not very labor-intensive. So they buttons, can do yeah. four sellout shows a night and make bank. Well, it sounds like Roy Raiden was kind not of Not to the minimize the job. I'm no. sure it's more complicated, but, but still. the division of labor not, is It's not is exhausting. Less. They don't yeah. have to perform the music. They just have to play it. Exactly. Like asking the Rolling Stones to do four full concerts a night would be unheard of. You know, they just or couldn't do it. Or to do, do a it. concert that lasted yeah. eight hours. Hours or whatever. So Roy Raiden's show, the I think it's called the All American Review, and yeah, Roy Raiden Review. Roy, Roy Raiden Review. Yeah. They show a delightful period commercial TV commercial for it with him and Joey Bishop, which sounds kind of like our promos here at the dinner party show. I was like, wow, I guess we're period. <laughs> <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> Yeah, we just need to get a sparkly um, a curtain and some really bad video camera. Yeah. And, uh, we're, we're good to go. <laughs> and a wand, maybe. I don't know. So, uh, makes a ton of money. Things are going great in New York. Taking care of his family, which was very important that to him. That was his principal. And people, and people, a lot of people around him. He is, he's, a, he's kind of a... a, a a mixed bag. A lot of people really revere him and love him and treasure him because he's there for them and helps them and launches careers and saves careers and brings back people whose careers are on the rocks. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also apparently a real son of a bitch as a businessman. He's yeah. a tough customer. He yeah. bargains hard and pinches the penny till the Indian says how, which I'm probably not allowed to say anymore. I guess not. Yeah. And, uh, don't even think there are Indians on pennies anymore. No, so it's probably yeah, absolutely. not much of a tell Abe Lincoln says ouch. How about yeah, that? How about that? We'll fix that one. Yeah. I think the sign that like he was a mixed bag, as you were saying, is that there are a lot of people interviewed in the special who are willing to still talk about him. And they talk about him as a complex man as opposed to their it's all sour grapes. Yeah. Like, but glowing. They they he was clearly a, a loved man, but like with their eyes open. Like there's a point at which 
people are asked about enemies and they are like, get the phone book. But they also say who in Hollywood doesn't have enemies. Yeah. You know, like yeah. what producer in particular in Hollywood. But the people they talk to include his former VP of his production company, Roy Radin Associates. Uh, the musical director of the Roy Radin Orchestra, a musician in the Roy Radin Orchestra. I think it's worth noting that because I think when nobody is willing to talk to you about you to any special, it's not a good sign, particularly for your guilt or Or innocence. they're closing ranks and you're guilty. Yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> totally. So then it's a good sign again. Roy does the thing that brings about so much peril in these stories oh that we cover. It's really, it's one of those he things where it's like, if you're already successful... to Hollywood. To become big in movies and sells the 170-room house or whatever. Yeah, he sells the 70-room. You added about 100 rooms there. But yeah, 70-room house. He moves to Hollywood, and I don't know, it's not clear from the special, this may be an instance of condensation on their part. He meets a woman rather swiftly, named Lainey Jacobs, who was initially described to us as a clothing designer with a stream of wealthy ex-husbands. Red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> um, and she's also a party girl. And yeah, she fits right in with Roy's life. She is very much a part of it. And so, I don't know, they didn't necessarily depict them as romantically involved, but you got the sense that that was maybe sort of part of it. But mostly she was like a tour guide mm -hmm. to the party scene in Los Angeles for him, introduced him to his friend, uh, Tally, Tally Rogers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. From, uh, Mississippi. I think so. And God, they, that is they were big name. buddies and really close. And when he was in town, would stay at the hotel where um, Roy was saying it was almost like almost like they were depicting it as a romantic thing. They didn't quite get there, but they were really close, whatever the, the, the nature and of their they, relationship And they was. talk on and on in the narration about how beautiful Lainey is, a beautiful woman. And, the, and they all the interviewers say she was a beautiful woman, beautiful woman. So, and they show these pictures of, yeah, she's, you know, like look, yeah. weighs about four pounds because she's done so much cocaine she doesn't have an she's, ounce of fat on her body. She has no body. feet. She just floats above the earth because she's so high and on cocaine. And she could open letters with her cheekbones. I mean, she looks, you know, she looks like... She's, she is a nice-looking woman. I will give them that. Uh, behind, you know, if you could take off the sunglasses and brush that hair out of her face. Clearly, she's the sort of woman who would never have worn the wig that the actress in the recreations was wearing. Uh -huh. It was a repro craptacular or whatever uh, we, it was we, supposed we, to uh, be. Uh, oh, shit, it was my own term. I came up with it a few episodes ago. Um, Reenactacular. Reenactacular. Re re See, it, if yeah. I can't in, we maintain that, we need we a need new one. We need you guys help us. We need a new one. These are terrible. I'm a terrible, terrible writer. But anyway. Um, you're not a terrible I'm just writer, kidding, but... but you said exactly what you were supposed to say when I say that. So, <laughs> the wigs are bad, but the reenactments are subtler in this one than ones we've dealt they with in the past. They don't speak. They don't speak, and they're... Ooh, I almost knocked over my tea. And they're um, slightly out of focus, except for those guys' eyebrows that you mentioned. And they use a lot of um, archival photographs, particularly of Roy Radin in various... He was a giant guy. He was enormous. Sort of a... Victor Buono kind of yeah 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 uh, aesthetic mm -hmm. Absolutely. big um, yeah looked like you know life of the party but yeah. always with these hats and so, big fancy suits. Lainey is introducing him to her friends, and there's one friend in particular she has that she would really like him to meet, and that is wait for it. Hollywood producer Robert Evans, who we talked about at the top of the episode. <laughs> Robert Evans. 
Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Robert is trying to produce a movie. Robert Evans is trying to produce the movie The Cotton Club, but because um, he's had so many flops recently, he's kind of box office poison and nobody wants to give him the money. So while he wouldn't typically have given Roy Radin the time of day... He's in need. So he mm-hmm. takes the meeting, and Roy sees this as his opportunity to finally break into pictures. I don't know that he's been here a long time, but he's been getting some resistance, too, because he doesn't really have any experience mm-hmm. in, in Hollywood. But he does have money, and Bob needs it. Mm-hmm. So Robert Evans and uh, Roy Raid meet. They decide that they're going to do it, Bob. They're going to make the movie. They're each going to get 45%, and they're going to have 10% left over for... Other financiers. Other financiers, and they're very happy, and they shake hands, and they part company. And Roy, I think, actually goes back to New York. I got the impression, too, that he went back to New York for some reason. Because that's where she called him. Is that what happened? Isn't that right? I'm, that's how I'm remembering. I think you're correct because when he comes, when they have it's when dinner, when he comes back is when they're gonna. So she he's calls staying him in a hotel with York. a secretary. So he's in New York, and suddenly he gets a call from Laney, and Laney is saying, "I should get half of your cut with Robert. You, Robert, Robert gets forty five percent, and I should get half of your forty five percent because I introduced you to and Roy." flips his fucking lid, as he is wont to do, and says, that's not how this works. I'm not going to give you a cut that large. That's, you're not a producer on this movie. You, you, I'll give you a flat finder's fee of $50,000, which, you know, is $50,000 in 1983, which is when yeah. this is happening, which goes further. Which is a three-bedroom house in the country. Yeah. She's not happy, and she wants to meet with him in person, or she calls him back apologetically and says, let's, let's work this out, let's meet. When you're in L.A. and he says, "Okay," so he agrees to the meeting. He and his assistant return to Los Angeles. They're staying at a hotel called the Regency. I don't know. I know we love to track these old L.A. locations because we live here. The shot that they showed of whatever hotel that was—that was not a pit. That was that's got to be that was a pit. I don't know what the Regency that they were talking about was, but that was not it. That was not it. A lot of times on these shows, they show file footage or they'll show a, a, a shot of downtown L.A. that's supposed to be the '60s, and there's the U.S. Bank building in the middle of it that was built in 1988. <laughs> but anyway, so they agree to have a dinner meeting at La Scala, and we're going to find out where that was. I have no idea where La Scala I was. I think it was not too far from where we are now on the Sunset Strip. I think it was somewhere in this neighborhood. I think it was where the Dome turned out to La be. La Dome, or maybe was, right next door to La Dome. That was what I was betting on. Was yeah. That it, was, it was there, and then, what is that now? It's that oh, Takaya Organic. It's like a taco place. taco place yeah. or something. Yeah, it used to be... The dome. It was that was the thing that it was when I got here, and yeah, that was a big oh, meeting. Oh, it place. was a big deal. My, I remember my mother going to dinner meetings at La Dome in the eighties to talk to people about the Vampire Chronicles. Well, so this like, would it have was been a the big 80s, deal. So maybe she might have been hanging out there with Roy Radin. I don't know. I, is my mother involved in the Cotton Club murder? Have we discovered something? No, we haven't. Um, no, she, no, she was not. She was at home reading, probably, or writing. So he agrees to the dinner meeting. 
But he hatches a plan. He doesn't want to be stuck with Laney all night at this table. So. One of the things he does in Hollywood while he's trying to break into the business is he's he continues to manage entertainers. He has all those entertainers from the um, from the vaudeville agents. One of the people that he manages is Damon Wilson, who played the son on Sanford and Son. He was and he son, was son, son, or and son, uh, ampersand uh, son. You know, either one, it's fine. We don't want to leave out ampersands. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God forbid. Mm-hmm. And um, and he gets him. He does the. It's you know the the standard thing. Okay, you show up at a certain at this point in the deal and tell me that there's a big party we need to go to and I'll leave with you and then you'll get me out of this awkward dinner with this woman that I don't really want to meet with, but I have to sort of soothe her feelings because she wants money and I'm not giving it to her. So, meanwhile, Roy's secretary is sitting back at the hotel room where he's waiting for Roy. And he gets a phone call from a woman who I believe does not identify herself. And this was an odd choice because this, is really this thing odd. happened and then they never kind of buttoned it back up. I it was just had like, the same response. They, they, this, but this woman calls and says... I'm looking for Tally Rogers. Remember Tally Rogers? We mentioned him at the beginning. He was a friend of Laney's from Mississippi, a drug buddy that was one of the people that she introduced Roy to and when a they met. Fighter? Wasn't he a fighter? Mm, boxer, something like that. Maybe something. I think so. I think he was a boxer. Anyway, something like that. The secretary says, We have not seen or heard from Tally Rogers in some time. Who are you? She won't identify she herself. Hangs she hangs up. He gets really suspicious. For some reason, he gets so suspicious that he calls La Scala to try to get in touch with Roy. Instead, he reaches Damon Wilson, who is waiting there to be part Still. of the plan to rescue Roy. And Damon says they never showed up. They never made it to the restaurant. And it's been a while. Yeah. So, things are starting to get weird. And the secretary is calling around all over town. And finally... He leaves a message with Laney's answering service because it's 1983 and people, people still, had, still answering had answering services. services. In fact, it was a big deal until, yeah, when I first got here, it was still a thing. Yeah. And basically what he says to her is, um, if you don't call me back, I'm calling the police. And so she calls him back. <laughs> the magic words. Yes. Yeah, the, the magic police. words. Police. So she says, uh, Roy and I had a big fight and he threw me out of the limousine on Sunset Boulevard and I am now at my attorney's apartment in in Beverly Hills. I have no idea where Roy is because he kicked me out of the car. I don't think he believes her, you know, necessarily. But it starts to make the evening seem still more suspicious. And, And so now a day goes by and Roy is officially missing in the eyes of those who care about him. Right. They go to the police. They have trouble filing a missing persons report because he's got a reputation as a party animal. He could have flown off to whatever. I just don't think it's that suspicious that he's not accountable for. But they're all saying it isn't like Roy to just disappear that if he was partying you would know where he was because he'd be partying in the middle of a club. He was or, so loud. Yeah, he was <laughs> so loud you could hear him from it's the valley. not an unobtrusive person so they figured they would know where he was or he would have checked in or something but he's just missing. Roy's mother puts up a $1 million reward for info about his whereabouts. It doesn't do the trick. A month later Later, they try and get in touch with um, what's her name to ask her about the evening, and she's gone missing. She sold her house and left town. She has sold her house and left town, but they phrase that she as mean, well, she was sent Laney, Laney that she sold her house in the valley because she was getting ready to become a big film producer and moved to New York. 
the I guess the intention was that this movie was going to be filmed in New York. I guess it was filmed. I think in it New was York. filmed in New so, York. So that's that's so out of date. Like film production or 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 film offices are so based here in California now that I was having trouble with the people going back to New York to make a movie because New York is usually where a lot of people flee once their movie flops here. But so that's I guess what they were doing. Um, a month goes by, nobody hears from Roy. And then 60 miles north of Los Angeles in an area called Caswell Canyon, a beekeeper is trying to stake out places for his hive, and he comes across a very large, withered, mummified corpse in a three-piece suit and a Pierre Cardin tie. I love that detail. That was so 1980s. But you remember why those details were important. The corpse had no face. Right. Yeah. The corpse had been shot. So many times in the back of the head with a 20, twenty-two. Twenty times, eighteen to twenty times in the back of the head. Eighteen to twenty times with like, a twenty-two. Wow! It's like a mathematical tongue twister. Yeah. So no face. Yeah. So no face. So they had trouble and no identifying possessions on the body. No, no wallet. wallet no, no watch. Keys. No ID. No. This anything. is long was, before cell phones, so there was no using that either. DNA had not been invented yet, so they sent his dental, his jaw, mm-hmm. which did still exist. They were able to. I don't know, harvest that and get in touch with uh, dentists in New York and were able to identify that, yes, indeed, it was Roy. So I don't know if this actually was done in this moment or if this was just the special parceling up these events in its own way, but the cops look into Lainey's story that she was at or that she ended up at her attorney's apartment in Beverly Hills after being thrown out of the car. And what they are able to determine from phone records is that she did place a call on that night from that apartment to Robert Evans. Remember Robert Evans, the producer we were talking about? Yeah, exactly. So they go to, they still can't find Laney, but they go to interview Robert Evans. And he's described as being very afraid for his life. Terrified. And his safety. Yes. He says that he was in favor of the two of them being mutual partners and that he knew about the dispute with Laney and Raiden, but he didn't really want to be involved in it. He left them to work it out on their own. And then he went to Vegas and got the financing for the Cotton Club from two other people. Exactly. He began going to other investors to get the financing before Raiden's body was, was found. Was even found. Now, you can look at that as something that's very suspicious, or you can just say, that's pretty Hollywood, that he's chasing the money for his next picture no matter what happens or who gets killed. And there was some thought, I can't remember when it came out, but there was some thought that he had even made an offer to buy Raiden out. Well, yes, that is what happens next. They go, the cops go to Raiden's secretary, the one who was so concerned the night he went missing and was calling around. And Raiden's secretary says, Evans was actually offering to buy Raiden out of the deal for $2 million. So he wasn't just a neutral party in this dispute with Laney. He was actually trying to actively get Raiden out. Get away from them. Yeah, get his money and get him out. So, um... Uh, as you said, he goes to Vegas. He finds two brothers who end up giving him the money to make the movie. At this point, the case is taken up by a detective with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department named, his last name is Avila, and he starts looking into the limo, the limo service, who rented the limo that uh, Roy Raiden was traveling in that night, who was driving it. They're not able to collect anything forensic from the limo, but they do discover that the limo was actually rented by a gentleman named Bill Menzer. And this is the first time we have heard this name in the course of this episode. And guess what? He's also vanished without a trace. Right. 
<laughs> also not available to be for uh, for comment on the particular. Uh, but he was apparently the former um, bodyguard or something security person for uh, Larry Flint. Larry Flint, yes, another random name from the eighties. If this got any, do you know that Larry Flint? I don't know if he was shot on my birthday, um, but. Maybe between our birthdays, we talked about our birthdays on the last episode in 1970. We had nothing to do. With we had it. nothing to do with Larry Flint being shot, but you know we were born around the time he was. So, um, what happens next is this, and this is one of those things where I'm like, this seems. I, I wonder if there were steps in between this. Um, Bill Menser, the guy who rented the limousine that they can't find, just happens to turn up in a drug bust at Los Angeles International Airport. So they call Avilia and tell him they're getting ready to nail him. Which is a great example of effective communication in law enforcement. Yes, so indeed. many times Good when we talk the- about these cases and they look back, they're like, nobody called us and they had the serial killer in custody and we didn't know because there was no interagency. They knew with he was looking for him already, so they alerted him that they were getting ready to bust them all- him to roll him up in a drug bust at LAX? I they, they said Los Angeles Airport, and we have a lot of airports here, so I don't know if it was a LAX or Burbank or Van yeah. Nuys or whatever. Who knows? So as a result of that drug bust, they are able to get a search warrant into Bill Messner's apartment. And in the, his apartment, they find photographs of him in fatigues, holding automatic weapons in, wait for it, the canyon where Roy Radin's body was found, 60 miles north of Los Angeles. A little coincidental. The only problem is Minster will not talk about anything. Not the photographs, not the weapons, not Roy Radin. He won't even acknowledge knowing Roy Radin. He just Radin. keeps saying, lawyer, 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 lawyer. And then the drug bust falls through, uh-huh. and they lose even that leverage. So they have nothing over Bill Minster. They can't and get him leaves. to talk. And he leaves. And oh, by the way... In 1984, the Cotton Club movie comes out, and it's an absolute spectacular bomb. I mean, a catastrophe. Did you see it? I eventually did. It is one of those things where you think, I'm sorry, what is this movie again? Like, it just wanders all over the place. It's it's a collection. It's like every idea they ever had, they just edited it together and mm-hmm. thought that would be a movie, and it's not. They were dream dance sequences and it's just bizarre it's like what were you going for um it also seems to be one of those movies where we wanted to make a movie about the african-american community during a period of history but we needed it to star a white guy like i don't i I, like i said i don't remember i think i've seen parts of it it was directed by francis ford coppola so it had this amazing pedigree attached to it. Robert Evans and Francis Ford Coppola, regardless of his yeah, flops, they that was the, his, the Godfather, the Godfather series. So they were, you know, they had their moments, but this was not one of them. And uh, yeah, it really it quietly died. Quietly died. In 1987, Detective Avila, Avila, excuse me, time Avila, passes. Time passes, and the case goes cold, frosty, cold, 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 cold. cold. Um, Avila, Avia, excuse me, um, gets a job with the FBI. So his cases are redistributed to other detectives. And this case, the murder of Roy Radin, ends up in the hands of the detective we have been hearing interviewed throughout this special. His name is Stoner. <laughs> detective <laughs> Stoner. <laughs> Hi, 
Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. So the case is passed to a new detective at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Detective Stoner in the cold case files, or it's something like that. Unsolved, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, but, it, but it, it apparently was a division that specialized in re-examining, going back through. And, and they were told, take go through this evidence, take your time, see if you can find anything that can bring this case back to life. Yeah. Because it was pretty high profile. And I think we should maybe throw that out as an example of it's kind of a cliche that L.A. cops let celebrities get away with anything. But I think what's clearly happening here is this is a case involving, however tangentially, depending on your opinion, one of the most famous producers in Hollywood, and they're not just letting it go because there are no apparent leads. So, yeah. you know, worth noting. Yeah, no, no. And he was not off the hook as the investigation re was remounted. It was not. And they remount it using the photograph that was discovered in Mensner's apartment. That's still the hottest yeah. lead that they have. Um, so the Detective Stoner says, as soon as we discovered that that guy, Bill Mensner, was divorced... We realize, oh, we have an ex-wife to question. <laughs> <laughs> right? I thought that was really like, that is actually a good ploy. Right? Because yes. if anybody wants to talk trash about you, it is very likely going to be an ex. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, That made really good sense to me. I thought that was very clever. They track her down. She's not crazy about the idea of talking about She's this guy. She's kind of flipped out because he's such a nut. Yeah. Like he was really, she was frightened of him, clearly. And so she's not wild about giving evidence, and she almost walks out on him. But they get her to identify the third man in the photograph. And just a reminder, this photograph. The second and third man. The second and third man. That's correct. They know Mensner. She was Mensner's ex-wife. And she identifies two other men in the photographs. One of them is Alex Marty, and the other one is a guy named William Ryder. Who is a former policeman. William Ryder was a former policeman from Ohio. And also... Um, Alex, well, they're, it's, it's, we got to keep the two separate because they were actually had different personalities. Alex Marty was also from Larry Flint's security team. Crazy pants. And he, everyone is afraid of Alex Marty because when they nuts. go question William Ryder next, he's like, no, Alex Marty is the nut job. He was in the fucking Argentine hit squads is what he yeah, said. He was crazy. So, um, they... They come down on Bill. I'm sorry. Am I going to? Did I no, skip ahead? No, that's Bill Ryder was a former. Um, was also part of the um, the uh, the security detail yes. for Larry Flint, and was a former um, police officer from Ohio. And he's gone back to Ohio. Right. And they get in touch with him, and I think bring him back out here. He's mm-hmm. game to talk to them. He's game to talk to them, but he says these guys are completely nuts and dangerous. And what happened was they bragged to me. 
when we were all working together, they bragged to me about what they did. And so I know they murdered Roy Raiden. I can I can tell you. But, but he didn't say anything prior to now, which I think is like a little bit of a crime. It, is, okay. it kind of is a crime. But I think you can always argue that he didn't know if it was the truth, right? Oh, it's just – it's hearsay. It's a story somebody told me. And until the cops come and tell me there's actually evidence Except for this. Except he was a cop. So yeah. it's like – yeah, that was one of those things where I was like, well, I guess we're just going to look past that. But right. he's terrified, so they make a deal with him. They'll put him in witness protection, give him $3,000 a week or a month or whatever, put his family in protection mm-hmm. so they're safe. And he agrees in exchange to wear a wire and to meet not with Marty but with Menser, right? That's correct. He meets. I'm sorry, I had to consult my notes here. Yes, he, he meets with Menser. And uh, he, in L.A., he gets in touch with Menser. He asks him to have a beer. And I don't know, right? I don't know it if this is just editing, it but was it was like, like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, what a complete chucklehead just... Menser must have been. So he invites him over to his hotel. He gives him a beer. He says, so what about that time you murdered that guy? And Menser on tape just unloads and tells us this story. And the story not only reveals how Roy Raiden was murdered, it also reveals why dun, Roy dun, Raiden dun, was really because murdered. Because nobody's ever been able to figure that out. Because remember that strange phone call from a strange woman that Roy Raiden's secretary got on the night he went missing? Asking for a man named Tally Rogers, who was an old party drug friend of Laney and Roy Raiden? It turns out that Tally Rogers was a drug runner and he had gone missing with over a quarter of a million dollars and 10 kilos of cocaine. Of crisp new Colombian cocaine. And the Colombian cartel that had sent him with it was unhappy and wanted it back. Super, super pissed. Super pissed. And they decided that because Tally was the main suspect in this disappearance of this money and these drugs, that Roy Raiden, because of their friendship, I'm getting to it, I'm building up to it. Okay. Roy Raiden, because of their friendship, must have known where Tally had run off to. So they recruited Menser as a hired gun to shake Roy Raiden down, and they get a chauffeur involved and all these people. But how did they know that Roy Raiden was friends with Tally? Tally's supplier... Was Laney Rogers. I see why this is such a great story. Oh my God. And it's like the hour is packed with all these revelations. You can just forgive the bad yeah. wig at this point. Because I know. it's just like, oh my God. So what the events that happened on the night, because we got caught up in the in the who of it just now, is the chauffeur is driving Roy Raiden and Laney to La Scala, which we believe to be on Sunset Boulevard, but we're not entirely sure on this podcast. Menser and Marty are following in a car close behind. The limo suddenly pulls off to a side street Because they stops. really did have a fight, and he really did throw her out of the car, apparently. No, I thought this was all staged. I they, thought were gonna, she was... they were going to get it. Well, she may have set him up, but oh, it was yeah. like, I thought they were going to try and get him at La Scala. But whatever oh, yeah. the case, she gets out of the car, and they get in. And they get in, and they lie on the floor of the limo and hold a gun at Roy Raiden's crotch as the car starts to drive 60 miles outside of Los Angeles, and they start interrogating him, saying, where is Tally Rogers? Where is this money? Where are these 10 kilos of cocaine? And he says the whole time, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. I, you know, it's I get, haven't seen Tally for months. I haven't seen Tally for months. Yeah, I didn't know he'd stolen the stuff. I didn't know he was a drug mule. I didn't know any of this stuff. Right. And the way um, Mensner tells the story on The Wire, 
he says that they reach Caswell Canyon, and as soon as they get Roy Raiden out of the car, Alex Martin, who's the crazy one that everyone's terrified of, uh, just shoots him in the back of the head. Again and again and 18 again. to 20 18 times. 18 to 20 times. And according to Mensner, he's so freaked out, he puts a bullet in the back of his head, too, to implicate himself or so that, to basically so show Alex Marty, Martin yeah, that he's never going to— Because he doesn't want Marty to shoot turn, him. He, yeah, exactly. Okay, so I thought that was a so yeah. So they were detail. yeah. It was really lurid and whatever. And one of the things that we didn't mention was they got Bill Ryder. The police got Bill Ryder to show them where the murder had taken place, and he literally took them. No, where the pictures were taken. Where the pictures had been taken, and they he took and, them to a place that was like a hundred yards from where the body. And was the, and the, the deal with these pictures is, I don't think they showed them. After they were taken in broad daylight, I don't think it sh- they showed them after the murder of Roy Raiden. They didn't show Roy Raiden. They showed that these guys used this area as some kind of training ground or just to fire off rounds or whatever. They were familiar with this isolated right. canyon, which is in the mountains on the grapevine, which I think we've talked about on the show before, which is where the sort of five freeway goes over the mountains and then down into the great the central sort of valley. Five. The sort of five. <laughs> the five adjacent freeway. If you're driving to San Francisco, you go over the grapevine um, leaving Los Angeles. Okay. That's your geography lesson for the for the episode. So the question now is, where is Lainey Jacobs? And just when you thought the story had settled itself and down. And this is like the last five minutes of the episode. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, this is the last Off five? Off we go to Florida. Florida, Detective Stoner calls Florida and finds out that Lainey Jacobs is now Karen Greenberger. And I think Karen is actually part of her legal name. It's like Lainey Karen Jacobs yeah. or Karen Lainey Karen Jacobs. Elaine. Karen Elaine. Or something like that. It just so happens that her millionaire husband has died of a suspicious suicide. Mysterious circumstances. And they totally like her for it. They totally believe she is the culprit. But they can't nail her down because she keeps moving around. She keeps going from hotel to hotel. So they can't quite find her. So they get in touch with his lawyer and they make this deal. They promise that if she comes in to talk to them, that they will not arrest her for murdering her husband, Mm -hmm. which she Totally did. Yeah. But they promise they won't arrest her for murdering her husband. Mm-hmm. So, so they she comes bring and they said, in. We need a statement from you about the night of the shooting, in air quotes, which oh. they believe was a murder. She gives her statement and then they say, Oh, by the way, we have a warrant for your arrest in the murder of Roy Raiden. But they didn't arrest her for murdering and her, her husband. And her lawyer goes ballistic and that's what they say to him. He's like, You said you wouldn't arrest her. And they say, We're not arresting her for the murder of her husband. We're arresting her for the murder of Roy Raiden in 1983. It's now and 1988. They bring her skanky ass back to. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. So they're all they've all been taken into custody. Alex Martin. They roll up the rest Messner, of the gang once they get her, right? That's correct. They don't take Robert Evans into custody, but they are very clear that he is not off the hook. And they and everybody else is saying, like Bill Ryder and the rest of them are saying that he was part of the scheme. Absolutely. That, and Bill Ryder, unfortunately, does not have any hard evidence to back up the fact that Evans was involved in the killing. But he He'd says only that, heard it. Yeah. So Robert Evans, on the advice of his lawyer, Robert Shapiro, who many of you may know from the O.J. saga, one of O.J.'s <laughs> early the con- attorneys. Co- if the cocaine fits, you must acquit. <laughs> right. 
Robert Shapiro advises him to take the fifth, which he does. So Robert Evans takes the fifth, walks out of the courtroom. They've got nothing solid on him. That's and so that's it. the end of that that's with the Robert end Evans. The Robert rest Evans. of them, on the other hand, life without parole. Life without parole. Life without parole. Life without parole. And I will say the looks that Lainey did, her um, fashion choices during the trial, her 11th hour attempt to become conventional a suburban school marm, school yeah. marm Almost worked from a purely visual and fashion sense, but, but my God, this did. woman! My but what a nightmare! God, what? But she a was. Story. But she was. Um, the the Colombia cartel was after her. Yeah, because they either wanted their money or their cocaine back, or both, or whatever. They wanted you know their stuff back, and she didn't have it, and she couldn't find Tally, and she really did think that Raiden might be a key to it, and she was plenty pissed about not getting well, half that, of the forty five percent. That's what I want to ask you about. What do you think is the relationship between the two events? Right, she's not getting the money she wants out of Raiden for this deal, and she's convinced. Do you think she truly believed? That Raiden knew where Tally had gone with the money and the drugs? I truly believe that there is more to the story than yes. we ever got. Mm-hmm. I think that the cocaine had to do with the financing of the Cotton Club. Mm. I think because you remember DeLorean went down during this same period for trying to finance the car company with cocaine sales. Like mm-hmm. it was not like it was big money and and it was and the hard times and I could see how that would implicate um What's uh, Robert Evans? You know, like right. the, if like I think there was more chicanery in and around. I think there was more relationship between the missing drugs and the movie deal mm-hmm. than became clear mm-hmm. in the process. That's just my surmise. Right from watching the story, it's like, yeah, all of this this linkage is a little strange. This seems a little strained here. Like, why? How would these elements come together? And it seems unlikely to me. That Raiden would be unaware that she was a drug dealer or that, that what's-his-name was a mule. Oh, like, my God, those, yeah. Those things seem like – so it seems like there's m- somewhat more to the story than was fully revealed in the process of either telling it in this format or in the court case or whatever. But um, I, I do think that whatever the case, her attitude in and around um, – the division of assets from the movie profits as mm-hmm. well as, but you can see how she would be much more um, like if she's not raising the money or contributing the money, how would she get off asking for half of the take on the investment? But if she's, you know, fi- helping to finance with 10 kilos of cocaine or whatever, like you can see how she would feel more entitled mm-hmm. to a bigger share. So the two things may be related, or maybe they were just two things she was mad at him about. I don't know. They didn't make it clear, but I thought there was more confusion there than got cleared up in this telling of the story. Did you have you read a Vanity Fair article about this case? We talked about that with Brooke Astor. You had followed the Vanity the, Fair. I read coverage. the Vanity Fair. I I read the article about the making of the movie. Right. Which incorporates this case, but like the brothers from Las Vegas who he got money from, right. they were terrifying. There was all kinds of terrifying involved in the financing of this picture, which is what makes me think that there may have been more chicanery in and around financing than is immediately apparent. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Bob may have gone to shadier sources than he would have liked 
to have gotten the movie made and as a result found himself at the mercy of forces that like one of the details I can remember from the story was there the mob had people sitting on the set because it was costing so much to watch to to ride herd on what was going on mhm like it was it, it is a there was more to the story. This was only one thing that happened mm-hmm. in the making of the movie. The, the making of the movie was kind of epic and kind of epically disastrous. And um, and I think that there was more. I think this was a bigger story. So I didn't really get more about this because he just in the in the story that I read, he goes missing. And then later it turns out there's and Bob has to testify. And it's very questionable about whatever. But they didn't clear up more of this issue. I would be interested in reading a longer article about this, mm-hmm. just this aspect of the story, but I would also be interested in rereading the... Because I can remember, maybe it was it was New York Magazine. That's was who that did it. it. Was this it was, recently? Was this like on the anniversary? Oh, no. This was when the movie first came out. This was when it out. happened. Yeah, this right. was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. This was back in the day. And I remember reading the article and thinking, this is the movie. Like, I don't know what happened to the Cotton Club, but the movie about making this movie, this is the movie. Have you seen The Kid Stays in the Picture, the Robert Evans documentary I I mentioned earlier? I can't remember what he says about Roy Radin, if anything. I feel like I had heard the name before, but I, I, you know, it's first person memoirs. It's like we don't always get the truth out of those. And I, like, I think Radin was a factor, but I don't think it was as big and, like, this was a big, splashy deal, but. The deal was so much bigger and so much splashier and so much worse than just this mm-hmm. that I don't think it rated that much. I think it was more about his own, you know, the catastrophe of this project. It was a catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. Over budget and all kinds of nefarious characters. It was just crazy. Yeah. God, it was a, it was a really fascinating. The, I and like I say, it's been like I didn't haven't read the article for it was in the eighties, so mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sure I'm leaving out details and forgetting part and remembering things, favoring things that did or didn't happen, or I'm shining them up more than is warranted. But I remember walking away from the the reading of the story, going, "Oh my God!" Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. It is. It's really like it's hard to get a movie made, but it's hard to make one that big a mess. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah, more frequently than you know, like, but not that often. Yeah, and I've rarely, if ever, heard of a story quite as um, catastrophic as the as the making of that particular feature. Wow. Particularly given the outcome, mm-hmm. when it was such a turkey. I think the thing that kept me engaged in Roy Raiden as a victim was the extent to which he cared for his family. You know, I think that there was the thing that I... You, you Sometimes you hear cases like this, and particularly the Hollywood ones, where everyone just seems like a snake and they all tore each other apart and you're yeah. like, good riddance to bad rubbish, you know, whatever. But the man took care of his family and he did it in a time when his fam- when the dad walked out. I was like, man, and maybe that was just the special playing it up with that family picture they showed over and over and again. And continued still, to. Right. I mean, his mom was in a place to put up a million dollar reward. Like, right. it was, I don't know, they didn't say whether they gave it to the beekeeper or not, but... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Does that count? You're just out walking know. and you find a corpse. I don't, I don't know. know. But um but like she was clearly like he had set them up. Like yeah. they were he really did show up for and it was something that everybody 
who talked about him said he was a good guy. Yeah, like he was, a, good he was guy. a tough customer and he was, you know, he had done the things that he was done and he was a party animal and all of the other stuff. And he had plenty of, you know, enemies. It wasn't a complete shock, but that he was really a good guy at heart. They also said he started working like a dog so early that he didn't really have a youth and that that may have contributed to his partying ways I'm later. I'm sure. But, you know, but he had no teens and no, no 20s teens because no it was 20s. so, because he was working so hard that, yeah. Well, I have and to he didn't say, didn't very long. I think he was dead by in his forties, right? He's like forty-seven when God, they shot him. I, I think don't know. Like that. I lost track of it. I think the, that's right. I I have to say, this is my favorite case we have ever covered on wow. True Crime TV Club. We may cover another one that's that's better, but this was just absolutely compelling. It had yeah. all the ingredients that captivate me as a listener, reader, and writer, and I'm very glad we and did it. And the Deadliest Decade did a nice job. Yeah, I think I thought they did a good job of putting it together. It was it was some funny. Um, but creditable, um, mm-hmm. repro craptacular. I can't do it. Um, but you know what I mean. Rean craptacular. Rean craptacular. craptacular. Um, um, I want to. I have to say this though. Then yeah. this may spoil you on the show. They also decided that the 1990s were the deadliest decade because there's two seasons that, of that too. That so doesn't really. They can't me. make up their mind about what the deadliest decade is. That really is. doesn't bother me. Well, um, when we are back next week with a new episode, it will not be True Crime TV Club. We're continuing to do one off, one, one on, one off. Though we are interested in your thoughts. But on we're interested it as well. if you want us to keep doing True Crime TV Club. If you like the deep dives we've been doing on other topics, we did one on award season and what that means for. Uh, your own personal sense of self worth and how you all caught up in our oh my birthdays. god the birthday one went so deep man it, it felt deep I don't know if it was profound for you well, listening deep for but us deep for us deep for us we went deep inside our dark dark twisted souls <laughs> no I have to tell you that isn't share, what happened I'm going to share were, this but it was a serious we, we did talk seriously about our thoughts about getting the episode AJ copy life. which you see on on whatever you listen to this the description of the episode. I write the first draft, and then Eric usually weighs in with his comments because I have a tendency to make it sound like a dark Russian novel. Yeah. And Eric's like, "Can you punch it up a little bit and make it more fun?" Yeah, you know, we want people Christi- to want to listen. Christopher to this. and Eric lose their sense of self and truth as they plunge the dark depths yeah. of this Hollywood murder. Doesn't mystery. that sound like something you want to yeah. spend an afternoon Fuck with? That. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that. Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm definitely the chucklehead in this particular <laughs> chucklehead productions with Eric Shaw. That's right. Well, I think that's all for this episode. Until next time, I'm. I, is it, I thought we were. I thought we got the wrap. Up. Oh, we did. Oh, did we? Oh, get yeah. The wrap it's up? like we're like I'm about to oh, go yeah. over. We're getting the nod. Yeah, yeah it's we're getting the time. nod. Okay. Yeah, oh well, I thought we were closing early. Jamie, well. I, no, no. Uh-uh. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I was just having so much fun. Talking I was about having this. fun this was too. Quite the story. I have 50 more pages of notes. Quite here. the story. The quite the episode. Quite the story. Quite the episode. Quite the case. Quite the true crime TV club. Until next time, I'm Christopher Rice and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. <laughs>